Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Our view is don't try to market time. It's really difficult. But in, in some cases, remaining invested is a better recipe for returns. B of A's Savita Subramanian is on Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. Look for it on your local public television station and on wealthtrack.com. Funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Baird, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. American investors have had an on-again, off-again love affair with stocks ever since they started trading under a buttonwood tree on Wall Street in 1792. Well, right now the affair has cooled, perhaps the result of a terrible year for equities in 2022, along with just about every other asset class, and the fact that for the first time in years, yields on fixed income investments are rising and are offering some competition. But this week's guest says stocks have gotten a bum rap and are, in fact, an excellent long-term investment. And she has the research to prove it. She is influential strategist Savita Subramanian, the head of U.S. equity and quantitative strategy at Bay of A Global Research. Her responsibilities include U.S. sector allocations for equities, forecasts for the S&P 500 and other major U.S. indices, quantitative equity strategy and global ESG research. She is, in fact, the head of the ESG environmental, social, and governance research at the firm and the first in that position. Subramanian has been named a star analyst by institutional investors for 10 years, with the unusual distinction of being ranked in four categories in 2021, including number one in ESG research, the first time the category was considered. She has also been named to Barron's list of 100 most influential women in U.S. finance for the past three years. In part two of our interview with her, I asked her to focus on some of the biggest trends investors can take advantage of. And we started with stocks, why we really should own stocks for the long term. You know, when you think about stocks, they sit in a really good place. They're, they're kind of in between fixed income and real assets. Because what they do is they offer you cash return and earnings, just like a bond. But instead of being a fixed amount of earnings and a fixed income, they participate in inflation cycles. Companies can get efficiency and adapt to you know, problems around them, like we're seeing right now with labor being tight and companies getting more efficient. So I think that stocks are in this really interesting pocket where they can adapt to different macro trends. And it's not just like buying a piece of gold or a fixed income instrument, um, but they offer earnings that actually participate in the vagaries of the world around us. You know, one of the things that I like about, about equities is that you can apply screens and look for companies that might be trading at prices that are below what they're intrinsically worth. And right now, I see a lot of opportunities and a lot of mispricings in the market. And, and you know, one of the quantitative things that we look at is 
dispersion. We look at the dispersion of valuation. So what we're finding is that there are there's a very wide spread between cheap and expensive stocks today, which means Interesting. Mm-hmm. that there is a lot more potential for finding mispriced opportunities. And that's where I think that investing becomes really interesting and fruitful is finding those inefficiencies, those mispriced companies where you can really uh, sort of play the long game and and ride out the volatility. Well, another very unpopular concept, um, which was just the way that you invested in stocks, was was buy and hold. And uh, your firm has done some really interesting research on why that is a really good idea and why market timing really doesn't work. Do you want to share some of that research with us? So we found that you know being uh, being invested and instead of market timing can actually be a better recipe for gains. And and the idea here is that um, you know if you had as an investor missed the 10 best days of every decade going back to the 1930s you would have made something under you know 50% over that entire you know century of investments but just you, by missing the, the the top 10 days of each decade of each decade so this is like yeah. you were mostly in there but you accidentally missed the 10 best days right. um, and, and what we found is that by remaining invested throughout the entire period, you made something close to 17,000%, which is staggering. I mean, there is a huge difference there between accidentally missing out on the best days. And I think the problem is that the best days usually follow the worst days, which is when everybody tends to sell after things really went down. So, so our view is, don't try to market time. It's really difficult. But in, in some cases, remaining invested is a better recipe for returns. The other kind of important component of stocks is just the idea of compound compound return. So if you think about reinvesting dividends, one of the most surprising statistics to me when I started in this industry is that when you buy the S&P 500, and if you just bought it and held it and you reinvested your dividends, you would make, you know, you would make hefty returns, and 40% of those returns would be from reinvesting your dividends. So dividends right. are actually a very important part of the uh, the investment decisions. Now they weren't, Savita, during one recent decade, right? During during the the last decade, uh, the 2010s, because companies were in, you know, growth companies were doing really well, and they didn't pay a lot of dividends. But do you think that that we are going to kind of go back or we are back in uh, a, a kind of a market where those dividends are really going to matter and, and will actually improve stock returns over time? I do. We've been in a, a very unusual period where multiple expansion, PE expansion, price to earnings expansion has driven a lot of the gains of the S&P 500. And I don't know if we get that you know, over the next 10 years. I think it's going to be harder to see expanding multiples in an environment where inflation is a little bit more aggressive, where rates are a bit higher. You don't have those tailwinds. So you know, over the last 10 years, I think something less than 20% of your returns came from dividends. But going forward, we expect to see a much 
more sizable proportion of returns coming from cash return. Another trend that happened over the last 10 years was that companies switched from paying dividends to buying back shares. And our view is that, you know, both make sense, but dividends are more of a commitment to shareholders rather than buybacks, which are, are sort of a one-time strategy. So we love companies that have the capital discipline and say, we're going to return a certain portion of our cash to you on a regular basis. You told me something really cute uh, at one point that you view what stock buybacks like having a date, whereas paying dividends is you know get, is a marriage. Yes, <laughs> so, stock buybacks uh, are how dating. How we should look at it. Yes, right. Exactly. Stock buybacks are dating. Issuing a dividend, a regular dividend, is like getting married, and you are in it for the long haul, which I think is an important signal. Another big trend for investors has been this massive move to passive investing, to buying index funds, to owning the entire market versus active management. And index funds have indeed uh, you know, done better than active managers, or I should say that active managers have underperformed um, over a long period of time, have underperformed indexes. How do you advise uh, investors about those choices? I think that there's room for both, passive and mm -hmm. active. Passive uh, index funds offer investors a way to get market exposure without paying high fees, which is wonderful. As a part of your asset allocation decision, having exposure to equities, fixed income, commodities, um, you know, gold, uh, all of it, you know, passive offers you an easy way to get exposure to asset classes. And I think that's really important. Um, at certain times, I think that active management becomes more uh, fruitful. And I believe we're actually heading into one of those periods where you know, the, the inefficiencies in the market today might actually be greater because of the fact that there are fewer fundamental investors around. So you know, when you think about what's been marginalized over the last 10 or 20 years, um, we've seen a lot of kind of longer term stock selection strategies being replaced by either passive investing or quantitative investing or sort of faster trading strategies. So I actually think that, that today there might be better opportunities for longer term stock selection strategies, just given that that's not where the eyeballs are. So there are a lot more inefficiencies in the market because not that many investors are looking at stocks quite that way. There's another you know, screen that people um, are investing in, and that's called ESG. And you are head of ESG Research, Environmental, Social, and Governance uh, Strategies um, at, at B of A Global Research. Uh, it's come under a, a fair amount of criticism because ESG is such uh, kind of an amorphous term, and it's very difficult uh, to, to, you know, to measure its results and to measure the outcomes. What's your assessment now of ESG now that now that it's been around for for quite a while? It's interesting because I think that that ESG is um it's sort of a brand that's been applied to a way of thinking about investing that has that is not new. And when when we, you know, when we talk about investing, if if um any investor worth his or her salt will think about the risks of you know good governance or you know flight risk of top talent 
or, you know, kind of, you know, environmental infractions that could cause lawsuits. These are things that we've thought about since day one of investing. But now I think what's interesting is that they're being codified and more formally integrated into the process. Companies are being encouraged to, to tell us more about how they're thinking about managing their workforce and environmental risks and decarbonization. The approach we've taken at B of A within research, I, I think has been really um, stable and is, is really apolitical and almost amoral. But what we're looking at is, you know, when you're assessing a security within a certain sector, what are the environmental, social, and governance risks that most matter for that company relative to its peers. And what we're finding is that it's not, it's not necessarily an ethical decision, but if you have a company built out of innovative people and you treat them really badly, they're gonna leave and go to a competitor. So social factors tend to be very important for growth companies. Whereas if you are an energy company and you uh, can incur you know, costly fines from safety or um, you know, environmental pollution risks, those are some of the factors that will be most germane to your business model. So our approach has been to look at this from an economic perspective and really say, okay, when we are allowed to look at all this information that companies are now sharing with us, how can we improve our returns um, you know, and, and think about companies more holistically rather than just all the, you know, the metrics we learned in business school? I think at some point we'll stop calling these strategies ESG because I think that- right that really every investor has a sustainable approach, right? I mean, there is, there's, a, a, there's a branding issue, and there's, but there's actually what's, what good investors are doing. And I think that when we're picking securities or when we're thinking about the risks of our portfolio. Another big change uh, that you've been tracking and writing about is deglobalization. What are the investment implications of deglobalization? And, and do you think that this is a lasting trend? Probably where we settle is we're in a global economy and that's never right. going to change. Um, but, but I think the way we're thinking about doing things is a little bit different. One of the reasons is just geopolitical risks. Um, information risks, uh, you know, national security, um, cyber security, those are, are some of the issues that are starting to become more top of mind for companies. Um, when you think about other reasons for shifting supply chains, it's just the idea that, you know, we've, a lot of the the emissions that companies incur are from moving stuff back and forth around the world. So an easy way to decarbonize is to, to sort of shift your, your operations facilities closer to your consumers. So that's another kind of uncorrelated reason for, um, for, for reducing supply chain uh, length. And then on top of all of this, I think that we've, you know, we've also gotten to a point where you know, country risk is becoming more volatile. And we've seen this, you know, you typically see this during periods of geopolitical strife. Um, but, you know, again, when you think about just energy security, if you're a, a nation that relies on another region for oil, that becomes a, a risk factor versus producing your own oil and being self-sufficient. So I think all of these factors are, are, are sort of popping up at the same time. Where we settle over, you know, the next 10 to 20 years, there are many experts out there that know far 
far more about this than I do, but my sense is that we, we end up somewhere in the middle, um, not in an environment where we've just come right back to a protectionist society and it's all happening in North America. I think that that's, that's hard to imagine at this point, but I do think that there are important changes that are taking place for all the reasons that I just mentioned. And from an investment point of view, so you know, you think multinationals used to be kind of the way to invest, and you also they also paid decent dividends, and and you would get exposure to emerging markets, and those were all of the the reasons for for investing in these multinationals. Has that changed? There are parts of that value proposition that we need to rethink, and uh -huh. and here the idea is that companies are going to figure out where to go and how to do business and how to be economically viable, but it might take a little bit of time. Time. And in that process of rejiggering supply chains, you might not see that steady stream of earnings and dividends that we've all become used to. So I think with any sort of shift in terms of broader secular themes, we need to discount that by maybe assigning a slightly lower multiple or a higher risk premium for companies that are grappling with um, shifting supply chains and geopolitical risks. And I think the market has been really good Good at sussing that out because what we're seeing is that country risks are now um, really factoring into the actual cost of capital for uh, lenders and for equity holders. It's kind of remarkable to watch the market and market participants essentially price that into companies in a real-time uh, uh, fashion. Savita, demographics, uh, the world is aging. How do you figure that into your in investment strategy and recommendations? I think that what that does is it still continues to put pressure on companies to produce income. And I think income is a theme. Dividends, is a, this is a theme that we've been talking about for a while. And I think it becomes mm -hmm. even more important as we go forward. Um, Inflation-protected income, I think, is a very important theme. When it comes to demographics and demand, I think that what that does is it provides a broad secular support for healthcare, for aging, uh, you know, for some of these longevity themes that we've been writing about. Healthcare is a big part of that uh, that secular growth. Um, I do think, though, that you know, even in the U.S., when you think about population, we still have a pretty sizable chunk of Gen Z, millennials. There is a pipeline of, of new employees that actually exceeds uh, baby boomers now. So, you know, I think that demographics aren't as dire as maybe we were making them out to be in, in prior cycles. And at least here, here they're not. At least not, in the in, United I mean, in States. China and Japan, they right are. In other regions, so. it does mm -hmm. look more problematic. But mm -hmm. in the U.S., it actually looks relatively healthy on a comparative, uh, oh. comparable basis. Who are the big winners uh, going to be in uh, in the in the markets uh, in the last decade? Big tech dominated, and specifically big U.S. tech companies. Is there going to be that kind of concentration in the market and that kind of dominance? Do you think in this decade? I think that technology will still continue to be very prominent. It shouldn't even be a sector. It's almost a process that you apply to all sectors. Um, where we're seeing potential for real margin expansion and productivity gains are in you know, labor-intensive companies that are starting to automate or you know, use AI and artificial intelligence to become more efficient. Um, you know, companies within uh, the sort of decarbonization space both 
energy, traditional fossil fuels, as well as green energy could both outperform the market together over the, you know, over the next several years as we, mm -hmm. you know, sort of think about how to get to a, a, a better place from a, an emission standpoint, you're going to need, need traditional commodities as well as uh, the nascent technologies. Um, so I think that we're in an environment where leadership could broaden out beyond just mega cap tech, um, which is which is really bullish. And we could also see a lot of these companies that haven't necessarily been as efficient uh, as they need to be um, really improve from a from a, a productivity perspective. And I actually think that is very bullish for the cost of capital of stocks, for margins, for multiples of, uh, of companies, because we haven't seen productivity gains in earnest in a very long time. And that could be the next bull market. One final trend, uh, the new world order. Uh, there, it's a new world disorder. There is a you know tremendous uh, amount of uncertainty, geopolitical uncertainty. Uh, are there investment implications to that and things that we should be doing in our portfolios uh, as a result? Oh, definitely. I think that what the, what what this sort of geopolitical uh, friction translates into is potentially higher inflation, a, a, a greater um, emphasis on self-sufficiency from a, a national perspective. Mm -hmm. um, it's unfortunately, you know, potentially negative for immigration, which puts even more pressure on wages. Uh, at the end of the day, what this means is it really necessitates companies with intellectual property making sure that they are residing in friendly nations and friendly residences. Right. And I think that's what hastens a lot of the reshoring. It's not necessarily driven by, you know, COVID supply chain risks or even decarbonization. Those are nice to have, but the real mandate is national security. And I think that is what is creating this pressure on technology companies in particular or intellectual property oriented companies to figure out how to, um, you know, kind of shore up their, their, um, their IP. So cybersecurity firms, for instance, um, defense companies, again, are those, those are sectors that you think are going to grow and that, that uh, have possible uh, investment potential? When I think about, you know, kind of how we're approaching geopolitical frictions, it seems like efforts are being fought on different platforms. There's a tech war, there's there's sort of a an, an information security war. There is, you know, typical, you know, defense and, and weaponry. But I think it's not necessarily as simple as just buying, you know, defense companies if you're in wartime. It's also thinking about all of the information risk, the, you know, the the um, the technology risk. And that is a war that's being waged on a very different battlefield. So cyber, I think, is a, a, an important theme as uh, as an investment process. And it's, you know, relatively nascent. But I think, you know, the number of cyber attacks that we've seen uh, in the U.S. Oh. is staggering, and staggering. probably you know most of us don't realize what's happening behind the scenes. So that might be the new um, you know kind of field for for uh, for for geopolitical friction. The one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. Thinking again about these long-term trends. What what is is there an area that we should all be investing in? I'm a quant, I'm a numbers gal, and I, we run all of these different screens. And the one screen that I find 
kind of the best kept secret in investing. It's called quintile two. And all it is is you take the market and you, you sort it by dividend yield. And instead of buying the highest dividend yielders, you buy that second quintile, that second bucket. And what we found is that it's kind of a, a, an eerily efficient way of buying low and selling high and avoiding downside risk because you end up with companies that pay a reasonable dividend, not a super high dividend. And what's good about that is that companies that are about to cut their dividends tend to see dividends rise to these precipitous levels. So you avoid that downside risk. And then you also have a value component because when a company's price goes up a lot and its dividend yield starts to come down, you sell it and you lock in that gain. And what we found is mm. that this quintile has offered the highest return and the lowest probability of losing money in kind of any type of market, whether it's a bull market, a bear market, a, you know, a falling interest rate, rising interest rate market, kind of an all weather strategy. So if I were on a desert island and I could only pick one screen of stocks, it would be quintile two by dividend yield. Savita, so lovely to talk to you about big trends um, in, in part two of our interview with you. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Consuelo. It was great to be here. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is a familiar one to wealth track viewers, but it bears repeating. It is avoid market timing. The reason is simple. To win, you have to be in the game. An analysis of the market provided by B of A Global Research shows that if an investor missed the 10 best days of any decade since 1930, they would underperform the market by a huge margin in each decade. On average, an investor missing the 10 best days saw 33% returns over the last nine decades. Being in the market, the returns were nearly 19,000%. To get the full benefit of stock market returns, staying invested is the best strategy. Next week, Mike Clarfield, veteran portfolio manager of the Clearbridge Dividend Strategy Fund, explains the many benefits of owning dividend-paying stocks. In this week's extra feature, Savita Subramanian shares her techniques for keeping at the top of her game as a consistently top-rated strategist in a very competitive field. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel, Thank you for spending time with us on this Memorial Day weekend. We are so grateful to the men and women who have sacrificed their lives so we can live in freedom and peace. Have a wonderful weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.